Hello, and welcome to Building Better, a podcast about the cities and human spaces we build worldwide that asks, how can we build better? My name is Christoph Lindner, and as well as being your host for this podcast, I'm the Dean here at UCL's Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. In each episode, I sit down with experts from the Bartlett and from the built environment sector to explore new ideas and solutions for some of the big issues that affect our daily lives, our societies, and our planet. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the women's movement and how activism can cross communities and borders. And I'm excited to hear from two researchers about their work on the global women's movement and their project, Transnational Infrastructures of Resistance. Today, I am joined by Dr. Ufak Paikar. Ufak has a PhD in modern Indian history from the Jawaharlal Nehru University. Her work lies at the intersection of history, cultural, and religious studies. She wrote her PhD on the transformation in Urdu from early to late colonial period in Bihar, and her MPhil focused on students' politics in the Aligarh Muslim University. She is also a co-recipient of the 2021 Antipode Right to Discipline grant and documented resistance and ideologies of organizers and participants of two of the most dynamic contemporary protests in India. I'm also joined by Dr. Raktim Ray. Raktim is a lecturer and joint program leader at the Development Planning Unit here at UCL. He has an academic background in geography, urban planning, and development studies. He identifies himself as an ethnographer, and his research geographically focuses on various cities in India and London. His current research interests lie in the area of politics of care, urban resistance, and spatial occupation. So welcome Raktim and Ufak, and you are two of the creators of the research project, the Transnational Infrastructures of Resistance. Can you tell us just a bit about what this project is? So when we started conceptualizing this project at the end of 2020, one of the motivation for this project was two important protests that were happening in India at that time. One protest was against the Discriminatory Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Registers of Citizenship Act, which abbreviated as CAANRC. This act facilitated a pathway to Indian citizenship based on religion, which was against the constitution. And simultaneously, the act criminalized Muslim minority population in India. The second protest, which followed after CAANRC protest, was the Indian Agricultural Act, which facilitated price fixation of agricultural commodities by allowing corporate companies to enter the agricultural commodities market. Both of these protests observed some of the largest mobilization that India has witnessed since colonial time. Looking at this massive mobilization that was happening, we three, me, Ufak and our colleague at King's College, London, Sri Lata, were interested to understand how resources are mobilized through solidarity networks and what infrastructure is required for this prolonged occupancy. Then we received a grant from Antipod Foundation to conduct this research. So that's how we kind of started uh, conceptualizing this project. Ufak, how, how did you become involved in the project? 
So, I mean, uh, uh, since I'm based in India and I've been part of uh, both the protest movements and uh, in one of my conversations with Raktim, we really uh, exchanged some ideas regarding how do we see protest? Uh, how do I see it from my own identity location? How do I look at it uh, from a political, ideological and political lens? And uh, it, uh, some of the questions which he was raising, some of the concerns which I had, I think we came together on these uh, concerns and questions and thought about exploring something which was uh, very significantly altering the political dynamics of India. So already there's been a lot of big words used. Uh, one of them that really caught my interest is solidarity network. What is a solidarity network? So the way we looked at solidarity network is how people come together and provide support each other and to a larger political cause. So my idea of Solidarity Network also started before these protests were happening, also during the COVID-19 pandemic. So when the lockdown happened, what happened was in every neighborhood in London, I found that there were mutual groups which were kind of self-mobilizing, self-organizing, and they were supporting a lot of resources to the community which were shielding, which were vulnerable. From that moment, I also felt that these kind of people who are coming together and volunteering is also something kind of very interesting to study. And pandemic kind of put that impetus to make people together for a common cause and to help others. So that's how I try to look at uh, Solidarity Network when I kind of started looking at this kind of work. The other word I'd love to understand in a bit more depth is the word occupation. And in the context of the kind of work that you're doing, looking at protests, what is an occupation? One can understand occupation is as a way of reclaiming the spaces. All these spaces which were quote-unquote occupied during these protests uh, were occupied with a particular kind of intent, with a particular kind of political demand to it that people will occupy these spaces. How will they occupy the spaces? How long will they occupy these spaces? And what is the political implication of this uh, occupation? So the political implication of these occupation was to open a channel of dialogue with the state so that the state could engage with the population uh, regarding whom they were uh, they were passing on or formulating the laws. And what were some of the key complaints or demands or challenges that the occupiers were making in the cases that you're studying? Uh, with respect to the uh, anti-CA movement uh, that is against the Citizenship Amendment Act, what people were demanding and specifically Muslims were demanding in the case of anti-CA protest is that uh, it specifically targets them and the fear is looming large over their head that the citizenship might be revoked, their nationality was under question. So uh, with respect to the anti-CA movement, that was one of their demands to revoke the act completely. With respect to the second movement, that is the farmers' movement, the government was intending to pass three laws with respect to the farming community, uh, with respect to the pricing. And the farmers were protesting, saying that it is it, it was against their interest. And uh, although the CA uh, Act uh, still remains largely in the grey area, the Farmers' Act was revoked uh, after the protest. So one thing I'm wondering about is it sounds like participating in these protests, which are done in visible public ways, potentially exposes the participants to political and other kinds of risks. 
What is that like in the case of the two protest movements that you've been studying in India? Are the protesters taking a, a risk by, by coming together? Yeah, I think it was very important because, uh, and we also in our project always kind of uh, had this question in our mind, like how much information we should be revealing and how how much we should not be. Because there is always a danger of kind of releasing and identifying those protesters. And there were cases of incarceration of many of these protesters which happened in both the protests. And particularly when we look at in the first protest, which is CANRC, there was a very common tool which the government used that these are unruly people and they don't, they are kind of getting funds from Pakistan, uh, which has been always part of the political debate that uh, anything the state feels is problematic kind of funded funded by the Pakistan. So there were a lot of violence also happened in one of the major universities in Delhi, which is Jamia Millia Islamia University, where students were brutally attacked. There were also a lot of uh, police brutality which happened uh, on the protesters who were protesting on those sites. But still, I think the state, the more they were making the coercive mechanism more visible, people were trying to solidify more to show their dissent against the government. So in a way, yes, it was risky for many of them. And some of them are still in prison uh, when we are talking today. But they, I think, didn't kind of feel that importance of their religion or their identity or their citizenship more important than their uh, individual safety. You use the phrase unruly people. This is the phrase I understand that the, the government used to describe the protesters. Rhetorically, it's clearly trying to construct the protester as a disruptive presence and a kind of disorderly uh, mob. I'm wondering, in your experience, in your research, what are some of the ways that governments or the police, you know, what are some of the ways that institutions portray protest in order to undermine the efforts of protesters? They try to create that impression using the media that uh, the day-to-day activities of people are disrupted. And especially the sites in which these protests were happening were important sites connecting one part of the city to to the another part of the city. So one of the ideas which were generated was that day-to-day activities are uh, are stopped, students are not going, uh, not able to go to the university, uh, people are not going to uh, get access to a hospital, people are not going to not uh, not able to go to offices. But this was the milder one. Apart from uh, the day uh, talking about stopping the day-to-day activities, there were also accusations about seeing them as disruptor, as seizing the city as holding the government to ransom and accusations like that. And uh, specifically, after these protests happened, these are the prominent activists and known faces were accused of inciting uh, violence in the city. And uh, based on these charges, many of the protesters are still behind the bar based on these allegations that these people were behind uh, disruption of the city, behind inciting violence in the city. Something I've always wondered is why do protests take place in, in, in certain spaces? You know, how, how does a protest movement decide on where physically to occupy space in a city? 
one of the marked departure of these two protests was moving away from the designated space of the protest. So before the anti-CEA and farmer protests, most of the protests, majority of the protests used to happen in a place called Jantar Mantar in Delhi. And Jantar Mantar was also closer to the parliament. Uh, and not only in Delhi, in other parts of the country, in other cities, there were designated space of the protest. What these two contemporary protests which we are studying did was to change the site of the protest. Instead of designated sites of these protests, we had protests happening in the enclaves of the city, near the homes of the uh, people where they were staying, or near the highways, specifically speaking about the farmer protest. And this change of uh, site of these protests actually changed a lot of things, most significantly the time for how long the protest will continue. So earlier, when the protests used to happen in designated spaces, the protests continued for at the max four hours, three hours, two hours, or sometimes even as less as half an hour. But these protests continued for months, three to four months. And uh, this continuation of the protest also changed a lot of dynamics, especially the gender relations. So in anti-CAN farmer protest, we see large participation of women protesters. And since these protesters were practically staying on road, spending their time on road for four to five months, it also changed the gender dynamics within household where women came out as political beings. Men had to take the responsibility of uh, uh, take the responsibility of the domestic duties within household. That also changed how we look as, uh, how we very uh, very categorically look at women as political being, as as main actors of the political transformation of the demands which these people were, uh, were, were making to the government. And the space which got changed was uh, near the highways in the intersection in the liminal spaces which connected the rural and the urban area. It happened in, because these were closer to the rural population, the rural population actively participated in the protest by just not coming in large numbers but also sending goods uh, food for the protesters. So that formed the link between two areas of the city and also changing the gender dynamics within households. Just to also expand and add a little bit what Ufak was saying, protesters were very strategically selecting these locations. Because in farmers' protest, the location was Singhu border, which was important because it was the rural gateway to Delhi, the capital. And the protesters realized that if they occupy that space, it will disrupt the commodity chain on which Delhi is very much dependent on. And hence, the protest will have a bigger impact of disruption. Simultaneously, the protesters can also mobilize resources from the surrounding rural areas, uh, which not only in terms of people, but also agricultural commodities, which were used for community cooking in the occupation site. Whereas uh, for the CA and NRC protests, locating it within religious minority areas, the protesters received a lot of support from the nearby mosques and religious institutions. So hence, I would say that these particular locations also became the part of making of certain infrastructure for these solidarity networks. So one question I have uh, relates to the gender transformation um, that you were describing, Ufak, in the, the protest movement. How did that change at all the way that the authorities responded to the protest, having more women protesting in public space? How did the authorities change or not their their response as a result? I think the authority, the way authorities responded to the large participation of women in the protest is that before this protest, uh, the government wanted to see themselves as savior of, uh, specifically speaking about the anti-CA protest, as savior of Muslim women. 
and uh, especially with respect to the many legislations which were passed they specifically uh, were posing to support women in case of the instant divorce uh, act it's called triple talaq act and they said that we are with muslim women and we will support them against this uh, draconian anti woman instant uh, divorce uh, measures within islamic laws but when they saw that women muslim women came out in large numbers on street uh, speaking about their own rights about their own citizenship right while embracing their religiosity while embracing their veil while they embracing of how to be muslim on street or how to be women on street they really responded very aggressively to it and uh, post that uh, protest movement we have seen uh, we have specifically uh, four to five known women behind bars uh, they also put one pregnant muslim women behind bar and some of the activists were also behind bar so they were really rattled uh, by their dislodging by their uh, questioning of their role as saviors and then they started uh, they started responding by incarcerating women they started responding by criminalizing whale they also tried to uh, mobilize opinion and also pass some acts where women with whale were not allowed within education institutes in india so that's the response of authority in terms of seeing large women on street large number of women on street and we've also talked as rack team was sharing with us about the urban rural dynamic and how uh, a change in that dynamic also augmented the impact of the protests it makes me wonder then about the physical and the digital so to what extent particularly in a kind of post pandemic world are we seeing uh, new tools new tactics being used by protesters that take the protest into digital spaces as well as physical spaces yeah i think uh, social media played a very important role here in both the protest and in a very complex way because uh, the state was also using social media to kind of criminalize these people who were protesting simultaneously protesters also used digital media or any kind of other kind of social media to highlight their claims to reach to a broader political imagination and even to get support uh, which we call as a translocal or trans border support from the diaspora community from people around the world and one of the incidents uh, where even in london when we look at when these protests were happening so people actually the diaspora the indian diaspora brought tractors in front of the indian embassy in solidarity with the protesters who were in india so i think in that way digital uh, media played a very complex role because the state one way it was criminalizing people through this continuous digital media uh, propagation by the state which was very much sponsored and many of the prominent uh, news outlets were actually quite in favor of the government and continuously criminalizing people but simultaneously happening when this is happening in the digital space the protesters also generated their own way of communicating their work and communicating their demands and that's why a very interesting thing happened uh, so in each of this protest site there is something which they developed which is a protest site based newspaper which they call as trolley times which kind of came during this protest because they felt as many of the popular news outlets are not supportive of their demands so they kind of generated this trolley times which kind of regularly published and which were kind of in solidarity with the protesters they were showing what demands the protesters were making and this was available in the uh, digital media 
So when you talk about infrastructure of resistance, it suggests to me something structural that can endure from protest to protest. In other words, it's something that uh, a movement could return to over time repeatedly to have support, to have a foundation, to have uh, tools with which to be more effective and impactful. Is, is that the right way of understanding what you mean by infrastructure? I think by infrastructure, we mean a network which mobilizes resources, which supports the protesters. So that kind of network. So one of the example I can give, uh, which was as many of the farmers who are protesting are from Sikh community and Sikh community has a quite a large number of diaspora across the world. So what the diaspora has done during this protest, the way they kind of showed their solidarity with the protesters, many of the remittance uh, channel uh, through which the diaspora sent money back to the home were under government surveillance. So what diaspora did, so they sent money to their relatives, to Gurdwara, which is a Sikh religious uh, institution, and they requested them to invest that money to buy food, buy blankets, uh, and buy other essential stuff for the protesters. So this kind of ad hoc nature of the infrastructure, which is very much invisible in the material world, was also kind of an area of interest for us to look at infrastructure differently. And this infrastructure, as I said, these were very much invisible. So we looked at infrastructure through its invisibility because none of these were documented, none of these were from the formal channels, but still diaspora not only supporting the cause and uh, making any kind of gesture of solidarity, but they actually invested a lot of financial resources to support this movement. So by infrastructure, we try to kind of look at these networks, which mobilizes certain amount of resources in support of the occupation. I'd like to talk next about the transnational dimension of your project. So what does it mean or how does it work to support a protest movement across borders? You know, how do you join a protest from another country, another region of the world? How does all this work? I think social media plays a very, very crucial role in terms of uh, reducing the distance, uh, reducing the distance in terms of people uh, across the globe if they are believing in the cause of this protest, they, they become of the part of the protest. So specifically speaking in terms of the anti-CA protest, uh, when uh, the female uh, activists who were behind bars, uh, when they were incarcerated, a lot of Facebook uh, conversation, posts, uh, discussions were happening where women were expressing their solidarity uh, for these women. And uh, in terms of talking about the transnational support, one of uh, recent, uh, not not so recent, but seven to eight months ago, when the global star Rihanna tweeted in support of the farmers against the internet ban, which was imposed during the farmer protest, it garnered a lot of attention uh, in social media globally within Indian nation about how a global superstar is supporting a cause within India. That shows the extent to which these transnational solidarity could be forged. But one has to also be cautious of the limitations of these kinds of solidarity. So what would some of those limitations be? Some of the most significant limitation would be that if uh, and uh, if someone from if someone from other part of the country, other part of the world is tweeting or extending their support to a particular cause in India, they might not be 
able to completely gauge the dangers involved, uh, their precarity, to what extent these people are vulnerable, how to frame their support. And that could lead to a bit of a problem. So that is one of the limitation of these transnational kind of solidarity, along with the benefits of it. These are the downsides of it. Are there other forms of support that you've come across? So we've mentioned already uh, superstars using their their Twitter uh, celebrity to raise uh, massive awareness. We've talked about members of the Indian diaspora sending money home to buy food and, and, and just support protesters in that way. What else have you come across? How, how else do people from other countries, other regions of the world support protest? I think uh, one of the examples which I observed being in some of the protests which were happening in London during that time where also that was also the time when BLM movement as well as Kill the Bill protest in the in UK were also very much prominent. And when I was also walking along with the Indian diaspora here in London, I found that a lot of people from Palestine Solidarity Camp, from BLM movement, as well as a lot of people from Kill the Bill Sisters Uncut movement also joined these two causes. And that also kind of looked beyond any significant particular issue and kind of connect a lot of other issues of state operation together, which can be sex workers' right, which can be kill the bill or right to dissent, which can also be Black Lives Matter. So all these kind of different uh, progressive movement showed their solidarity in this kind of protest. And that also changes the grammar of protest and solidarity the way we look at uh, because these are not only symbolic gestures, but I think there are also a lot of learnings and cross-learnings from each of the movement which can take uh, from each other. And I think that makes protests, that makes any kind of solidarity much more visible and important. This is a really, really important insight, I think. How does that solidarity between movements come about? Does it happen very organically, um, uh, fortuitously, or does that need to be planned and engineered in your experience? I think one of the ways in which uh, I can see solidarity uh, across protests, uh, especially uh, speaking from within the Indian context, while we've been uh, involved in the protest for the post to four to five years, one way in which I have uh, felt solidarity by was also extending kind of an emotional support. So a lot of people who were expressing their solidarity on Facebook, in social media platform, they constantly reiterated the fact that we are not alone in this fight. And uh, maybe the larger issues with respect to uh, gender, with respect to democracy, they were exhibiting solidarity and giving us that kind of support in terms of providing us emotional support that we are not alone in the battle. I like that thought of we're not alone. We end each episode of Building Better by asking our guests what we need to do to build better in the future. Given our topic today is protest movements, uh, I'd like to ask you each what you think we need to do to build for better protest movements. So one of the limits to which I foregrounded with respect to protest is sometimes when people are uh, exhibiting their solidarity, they might not be aware of the precarity or the vulnerability or the extent to which they can frame their support in favor of people. So we can build better by more communicating more and by listening uh, more, uh, listening more, by understanding the local context much better. 
So I think that these transnational protests, these solidarity can get sharper on common issues as well as specific issues if there there are more communication and people listen to each other more. I think to build better, it is important to understand the importance of solidarity networks. And when we look at solidarity networks, this is also important for us to understand how solidarity networks play an important role in making infrastructure which facilitated this prolonged occupation, which we were discussing earlier. We also kind of think that there is a cross-learning can happen through developing an archive of resistance. And we are already in the process of creating an archive from an expansion of the project which we were doing. And that is supported by Imagining Future Project, which is based at uh, University of Exeter. Our colleagues at Royal College of Arts are also helping us to develop the metadata infrastructure of this archive, as well as exploring ways through which artistically we can demonstrate this archive through designing a dress, reflecting archives through innovative motion artists. So Imagining Future, a UKRI project, is also in the process of building an egalitarian open access umbrella archive, which demonstrates multiple voices like us. And in that process, we are trying to reconceptualizing archiving also as an essential process to build solidarity. And we would be very interested to build an egalitarian archive that not only makes us think of archiving in an anti-colonial way, but also becomes a transnational repository for building solidarity against state atrocities. And with that invitation to build an egalitarian archive, it brings us to the close of our episode today. You have been listening to Building Better, the Bartlett podcast. This podcast was presented by myself, Christoph Lindner, and brought to you by the Bartlett, UCL's Faculty of the Built Environment. It was edited by Karis Bradley and featured music from Blue Dot Sessions. I was joined today by Ufak Paiker and Raktim Ray. If you would like to hear more of these podcasts, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk slash Bartlett slash Building Better. And of course, you can follow us at the Bartlett UCL. See you next time.